Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have Robbie Blanks joining us from Lancaster Bible College, although he's in Colorado. That's where he's located physically. And we have Curtis joining us from Texas, and I'm in frozen California. So cold here. And I think it was 50 degrees this morning. Oh, man. And sunny, but how's the weather like out there in Colorado, Rob? It was, it was pretty chilly. I think it might have been like negative 10 this morning. Gunnison is actually one of the coldest cities in the, in the, in the U.S. So I think one of our friends, his, his mom, mom follows it. And this was like three weeks ago. Gunnison had been the, the coldest in the entire country seven days this winter. So but I think we've only gotten down to about minus 20. So, in, Including Alaska? I don't know about Alaska. Okay, so lower 48? I would imagine that's the case. Wow. Gunnison. That's a great name for a city. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Gunnison. Especially when you break it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us this morning, Rob. We're very happy to have you. We're honored that you're here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. Well, I thought I would start with a, a warm anecdote. I've known Rob almost all my life. <laughs> um, we grew up together. We went to elementary school together. We were in the same gangs and, and like in high school, criminal gangs. Um, just kidding. In case, in case you need to know that that's just kidding. Uh, but the warm anecdote I have is that Rob, this is serious. Rob and I, our senior year of high school, met every morning before high school in a small house that was next to it the church in our neighborhood that Rob went to. The name of that church is Foothills Baptist Church, or at least it was at the time. Is that right, Rob? Yeah. That sound right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it was a church that I would pass all the time in the neighborhood. It was there, but he knew about it and a small Baptist church. And they owned the house right next to it. And Rob and I uh, got access to that house in order to pray every morning and have a little Bible study and pray for people and pray about things in our future. So that was my senior year of high school memory. And that's, and I remember going there for some reason, I only remember it when it was really cold. I don't know why. Like, I remember it being dark and snowy and we were opening up that house and firing up the coffee pot. So or I think you would boil water for tea or something, but we were using the stove area. So, and then we would go into the living room area and, and do our little prayer time. So it's 17, 18 year old. Yeah. So those are good memories. Yeah. I remember too, you know, with those times, sometimes we'd go over to the hog back, which if you're not familiar with the front range of Colorado, it's flat as a pancake. And then you've got the Rocky mountains that just come straight up. Mm -hmm. And we'd walk up on the hog back in the morning and watch the sunrise. Those were, those were some great memories. Yes. Yes. The Hogback Ridge. That's a first ridge that comes up from the plains. And it's not that high. How, how high would you say? Maybe hogback. 500, 500 or 800 foot, something like that. Something like that up there. Yeah. Above, not above sea level. This would be 
because I think Colorado is what 5,000 feet, something like that. Yeah. It's real close to above sea level or a mile above sea level. Denver is. Yeah. So it'd be 500 feet above that or something like that, probably. So it's enough that you can get above and see quite a bit. You can see quite a bit of the front range there, but yeah, those are, those are warm memories. What a beautiful place to grow up. That's awesome. Amen. Yeah, it was. And the, the more places I visit, the, the more that's apparent to me, Mm. just how special of a place that was to grow up. Yeah. And I think actually the public schools were pretty good when we were going there, Rob, but would you say? Yeah, I would say so too. Um, we, I, I walked to, to elementary school and I'm sure you did too, right, Rob? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we would ro- walk there and then, you know, there was a creek, there were crawdads in the creek, there were fish in that creek, there were frogs, snakes. There was an owl in the big tree one time that everybody was looking at. I don't know if you remember that. That was probably third grade mm. in the middle of the day. It's like this big great horned owl. First mm. time I ever saw one. Um, you were hooked. Yeah. We don't need to go off into owls. Okay. Cause this is going to go off in a direction and we're, we're here to talk about Africa. So um, Rob, you have spent years in Africa. You now work uh, with, Lancaster Bible College, right? On you're right. on staff there. Yes. Okay. Tell us what you do at Lancaster. Yeah. And why, so are, gonna... why are you? Did you ever live there? And like, how does that work in terms of? Yeah. So we were. So uh, we were. My family and I lived in Mozambique, Africa. We lived there about six years, hmm. and we came back from Mozambique about five, about six years ago. Seven, six, seven years ago, something like that. And I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in Mozambique, like these missionaries of old that would travel over there with their coffins. And so that was a big disruption for me personally as a man and leader provider of the family. And we weren't sure what those next steps were going to be. And uh, a door opened providentially, graciously, mercifully for me to join Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary. And they had a program that they had developed. It was a partnership with a ministry in Uganda called the Pastors Discipleship Network. And the Pastors Discipleship Network is founded and led by Richmond Wandere. Now, Richmond um, is an extraordinary guy. He was a compassion-sponsored child. And uh, he wasn't a believer when he was sponsored. But through compassion, he came to know Christ and his family through him. He's very, very bright. He ended up going to the top of his class. So through compassion, he was able to get a scholarship to the university, was at the top of his class in the university, became an accounting professor at uh, at the university there. Hmm. And then he was bivocationally pastoring a church. And uh, so he was an accountant, an entrepreneur, and a bivocational pastor. And uh, he had um, I don't know if he would use these words, but as I've heard him describe it, uh, you know, maybe a crisis of calling. And uh, he was visiting a uh, doing a church call, a visit and a uh, church member. And a, a lady had lost a baby and it was maybe a two or three year old. And so Richmond shows up. He's doing a pastoral call and pastoral visits in, U- in Uganda are different than they are in the U.S. It's not just the pastor. They might bring people to come and sing in the choir. And 
So Richmond comes and he comes into this house and here's this, this dear woman holding, holding a dead child in her arms and Richmond goes down and sits next to her to, to comfort her. And, you know, my word, what do you say in such a time? And, and so he just comes up next to her and she just had an iron, an iron face from the grief of losing this child. And she turns to Richmond and says, pointing at her baby, dead baby, what did he ever do to God? And Richmond kind of jumped back, you know, my word, what do you, what do you, how do you respond to that question to a mom who's holding a dead baby? And then she said it again a little bit louder. What did he ever do to God? And then a third time and a fourth time, by this time she was practically shouting. And Richmond is pulling out his phone, trying to call his mentor pastor, Pastor Peter, you better get over here right now. I don't know what to do. And, um, <clears throat> and that, was a, that, was a, that was a tough moment. And he started looking at himself and he said, okay, I'm an accounting professor, a businessman, and I'm a pastor. Being a pastor is a whole lot harder than being a businessman. And I'm trained as an accountant. I'm a CPA. I'm trained in that. I'm a pastor. I don't have any training in pastoral ministry. And so what, through that and a number of other things, God gave Richmond a heart to start this ministry, the Pastors Discipleship Network, PDN. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richmond is such a talented guy. He has, he's, he has had, and I'm sure he would have if he wanted them, many opportunities to come to the West and have a very good job. And, uh, but he has chosen to go back to Uganda. He said, that, that's my people. This is the calling that God's given me. And I would not blame him if he pursued a better job to take care of his family. I would say, you do what you got to do. Amen. But when I see him going back like that, that really gets my attention. And so he was able to get a master's degree from Moody. And then he was able to do work on and earn a PhD in leadership from Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary. And that's how Richmond got connected with LBC Capital Seminary. And uh, Richmond said at the time to the, the then current president, Peter Tag, you need to come down to Uganda because we, we're dying for your help. We need your, your educational help in Uganda. And so President Tag jumped on a plane. They went down. And uh, they pulled the trigger and opened up a new program, a Master of Arts in Contextualized Pastoral Ministry that LBC offers, you know, provides all the academic stuff, but they do that in partnership with PDN in Uganda. And so they're separate organizations, but a beautiful example of how can we as separate organizations in different countries come together in a cross-cultural partnership for the kingdom of God. And so the ministry there with Richmond is to equip and train pastors and leaders. Uh, one, one more quick piece, two quick pieces that you can follow up. In Uganda, and I would say many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, the, the spiritual men, whether it's a witch doctor or a pastor, if you're a spiritual man, a spiritual leader, you have an unbelievable amount of, of authority. And it's something for most Westerners, we don't have a clue about that. Even modern day, you know, these days, pastors are getting lower and lower on the totem pole. But, uh, but in a lot of contexts, sub-Saharan Africa, if you're that spiritual man, you, you, you possess authority uh, that's very high. And it can oftentimes be higher than medical doctors, policemen, government officials, businessmen, educators, because in an animistic uh, culture and society, the 
the reality of the spiritual world is, is oftentimes more real than the physical world. And so by God's grace. So at, at that time, LBC was ramping up this partnership, this master of arts degree, they were ramping that up and, and they needed to bring somebody in full time to, to dedicate themselves to that. And so God gracious and mercifully opened that door to me and I was able to join their team. And I've been able to do that remotely because it's a remote program, been able to do that remotely from Colorado. What a great story. That's a great illustration of the need for pastoral training mm -hmm. and also apologetics. Do you have apologetics in there too? We don't. So our program, this master of arts, it's a two-year program, 12 classes, 12 academic classes. We've got two classes that are field-based ministry where they, they link up with a local mentor. And so if you have only 12 classes, oh my word, you know how painful that is to pick and choose and say, what do we include? What don't we include? And so we've got um, our, our core, like our Bible and theology. We've got biblical narrative, hermeneutics, theology one and two. We've got church history in the African context, which was I was really excited about adding that, that class. And then we have some more application-oriented classes. We've got uh, discipleship, leadership. We have... Um, a counseling class, pastoral counseling type class. And we have holistic child development is another one of ours. Mm. And I had people say, you know, man, oh man, you got 12 classes. Why are you doing, why are you, why is one of those a holistic child development? Well, in Uganda, demographically, it's one of the youngest countries in the world. And so they say, you know, like 50, roughly 50% of the population is 15 years old and younger. And I think it's about 70% is about 20, 25 or 27 years old and younger. And so if you go to a church in some of these contexts, it's, it's almost like a massive youth group. And so, um, you know, if we're not paying attention to these, the young people, the children, as they're being built up, it's, there won't be much of a future. So we've got those classes and we have some contextualized classes. We have issues in pastoral ministry, one and two, where we have modules that deal with the prosperity gospel, the use and abuse of authority, integrity in the life of a pastor. And then the fourth one would be the issue of poverty and dependence. Hmm. Rob, um, you said you lived in Mozambique. Tell us uh, the backstory on that. How did you, what, how did, how did you go from what you were doing before? Well, actually, maybe you should start at the beginning, <laughs> um, not conception, but uh, start like um, not Genesis 1-1, but like start at, um, I guess, after after high school. What? Yeah. Tell us about your story, um, how you developed, what you did academically and how you were feeling the Lord lead you. Yeah, you bet. So I had the privilege, Lucas, as you know, I was not was not in, in those years, and it's been a struggle over for me to develop some skills, but the reading and writing for me, and especially in high school, was not my strength, and so I could do math and science. I thought this is great, and so when it came time to do university work, I pursued an education in engineering from the Colorado School of Mines, and uh, had a, did structural engineering with minor in electrical, and I thought that was fantastic, you know, studying advanced math. To me, that's almost like going to a worship service, how you can study those things and not believe in God is beyond me. 
Um, but uh, anyway, so I, as I was finishing that up, I was thinking at that point uh, about the future and I wanted to teach. And so I was thinking, well, I'd like to teach engineering. And so that's what I was pursuing and getting ready to move in that line. And then I had somebody at church ask me, would you please come and teach our college and career group? And uh, I was scared to death, didn't like talking in front of people. And, but I knew I needed to do it. And so I went and did that. And it was, uh, it was a, as a, a milestone for me and realized, wow, teaching engineering and math, that might, be, that might be nice and good and exciting at one level. But teaching the word of God is way, way more exciting and more wonderful. And so, and so that was something God used to redirect my path. And so then I went on to seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and got a Master's of Divinity at that time, I told the Lord, I said, you know, I, I'm open, I'll do this, but I want to teach. I don't want to be a pastor. And uh, this never worked very good for me when I tell God what I don't want to do. <laughs> so we came back from uh, Kentucky. By that time, I was married and uh, we had a couple of children, pastored a church plant and called the mountains of Colorado, the Church of Blue River. And a little bit into that, I had, to, had a chance to go on a short-term missions trip to Honduras. At that time, I had the I knew that I ought to. If I'm a, if I'm a Bible believing Christian, I ought to believe in the Great Commission. I understood it up here, but honestly, I didn't really want to go. Why would, Why would you want to leave the U.S.? I was a good old American boy, the Second Amendment, everything else, and uh, but I had the money, I had the time, and so I went to Honduras, and God changed that that direction really completely. I came back from that trip and and asked my wife Heather. I said, "Are you ready to go internationally?" And she thought, I think she thought, you know, what in the world happened to my husband? <laughs> but, uh, and so God started that process. We started praying and thinking together and uh, trying to evaluate, okay, how's God gifted us? What do the needs look like globally? And how might that match up strategically for us and make sense? And uh, one of the major needs in Sub-Saharan Af Africa is teaching and discipleship. And that matched up with, with how I believe God had had built me. And so we ended up looking at a few different countries, but Mozambique came kind of came to the forefront. And the more we looked at it, the more it, it made sense. And so we ended up raising money and then our whole family went, we, we arrived there about 2009 into Mozambique. And, and you were there for six years. Mm -hmm. Mozambique is, a is along the Southeastern coast of Africa. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. It's, it's got a uh, long coastline. It's it's longer than California, right? It's massive big, coastline. Bigger than California, right? Yeah, I think it's about twice the size of the state of California. I think fifteen hundred miles of coast. Wow. In Mozambique. If you were to sail east from the, you might you you'd likely land on the island of Madagascar. And the language spoken in Mozambique is primarily. Portuguese from the Portuguese colonialization. Sure. Okay. So you have, and, and, and there are Muslims there, lots of Muslims. Is there right? are, prim or? there are some groups somewhere where Islam is more dominant up North, especially. Okay. All right. Um, but I would say the majority of it would be a mix of some syncretism with um, the, the history with the Roman Catholic church there. Mm -hmm. And then also some Protestant missionaries, and then that mixed together with an, an animistic yep. world worldview. Right. So that was the primary the, the culture that we were we were working and ministering with. 
Sounds like CU Boulder, basically. It's just basically CU Boulder. You bet. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're not all well, that different. You know, didn't yeah. somebody say there's nothing new under the sun? Yeah. So, Rob, I'm. you've mentioned two African countries, right? Honduras and Mo- just kidding. Uh, Mozambique and Uganda. Uganda has an English background, right? Correct. Okay. So right, right away, my question to you is, I mean, I don't know a lot about Africa, but I am at least a little curious about it. And, and I know it's a huge place and uh, we typically hear people talk about Africa as if it's just like, Oh yeah. Africa. Yeah. That's it's just one country of Africa. It's one thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like Chicago. Actually, Chicago is, is kind of a lot different parts of Chicago too. Right. But so is it living in Mozambique and then working in Uganda? Is that a one-to-one translation or is it, was there a learning curve or how far ahead were you of, the, of that learning curve just because you'd lived in Mozambique and what, Yeah. how do you, how do you navigate that? How did you, how close was it? How different was it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think generally speaking, the Eastern, if you have sub-Saharan Eastern Africa, they share a lot of cultural similarities. Um, and so in that sense, uh, living in Mozambique and then bringing up, bringing, bringing up what we learned there and then applying that to Uganda as we could, there was a number of, a number of similarities. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the continent of Africa, about 5,000 miles from north to south, east to west, Many, many languages. I don't know how many languages. Nigeria, I think, has over 200. Uganda, with the history of the Civil War, the tribes had kind of um, disappeared. And so to some degree. And so there's maybe 20 tribes or so in the, in the country of Mozambique. Then Uganda, I think there's over 50, 55, something like that. And uh, I think for us, the biggest lesson was how to enter a culture that's not your own. And if you have some skills on that, which it's not rocket science. Those are basic skills, right? Yeah. I mean, you come in humbly, you come in as a learner, you ask permission to do things. You don't come in with your chest puffed out up. You know, I'm here to tell you how to get it done. No, mm-hmm. we're all in need of, we're all in need of a savior. We all need um, a rescue story. And so if you come in as a learner, it's amazing how far you can go that way and so if we can if we've tried to apply probably some days better than others that as well in uganda and so you know and then and then that's not that much different like you mentioned chicago in the u.s i mean there's so many things my wife she'll she jokes and she says her first cross-cultural experience was getting married (laughs) and same kind of thing you know you know there it's funny but it's also true if you're humble you ask questions you learn and so that's all part of the process and can be, can be a lot of fun. And then also that helps in language learning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Language learning. So did you learn Portuguese? Yeah, I did. So we, I taught and ministered in Portuguese and uh, that was, I'm not one that's naturally gifted in languages. I think what, if it took Heather, my wife, an hour to learn it, it'd probably take me 20 hours and that's just flat out, not fair, but, uh, <laughs> that's the way it went for me. And so 
I had a Mozambique and your brother, he said, he said, man, we love these American missionaries that come because they get off the plane and they just fall on their face and it's a yard sale everywhere. They can't <laughs> even talk like a baby. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you know, at, in that process, if they're able to get up and put the pieces together and learn, it just breaks you. But if you're able to, to persevere through that humiliation in a sense, um, what this, what this Mozambican brother told me, he said, you know, that, that part of that transformation of that journey then really helps them out as they enter into Mozambican culture to serve and help as they're able. How do you, how does one know if you're humble? Like, what's a good gauge of that? Like, let's say someone is thinking, oh, I want to go over there or, but, but how, what would you tell them? to to check it, about the humbleness how, how how do you know what's a good gauge maybe you can't know until you get over there yeah i mean that's a good question i i would want to look at how they interact with people do they have friends and what are those relationships like that's what i would look at because if you can't do it in your local context mm -hmm. or you you know there's whispers of oh my word that guy's really grating on me because of his arrogance or whatever it might be then those would be real bad signs obviously but I'd watch what they do um, at, at church, friends, work, those kind of things. What's your reputation? You know, it's funny in Mozambique, you'd see these, some of these old uh, Mozambican men and would have a very stern face, almost looking angry. And then if I walked up to them and I just said, I'm so happy that I'm here in Mozambique. What a beautiful country you have. Um, would you mind could I ask you a few questions? And if I position myself as a humble learner, as a guest there, I compliment their culture, their, their, the beauty of the country. And it was just amazing. You'd see them smile ear to ear. Oh yeah. You can ask us whatever you want. And then they help you. And then if you ask something stupid or you make a faux pas or something, you know, they understand, oh, he's new. It's okay. We won't bust his chops for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, they're so gracious. They're mm -hmm. so, so gracious when you open yourself up to, to their critique, you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. I remember, I remember doing that teaching in, a, in another culture in Africa and just feeling like flat on your face. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, yeah, what you're describing is dead on. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of encouraging, I think, because that means that you can check whether you're, you have sort of the basic chops in your, where you're at, right? The same thing, right? Say yeah. if you're, if you're humble where you're at, you're going to be humble over there, probably even more humble <laughs> because it's so different. You have so much to learn. There's a, there's a history there. You probably were not taught in high school or college. Um, and, uh, and I, and I cannot even imagine the, did you feel overwhelmed in terms of learning every day? Oh my word. It was, I'm an introvert. And so when, when the chips are down, when the pressure is up, my, my inclination is to build walls and retreat. And that's, that makes it really hard. How do you enter into another culture and learn the language? If that's your, going to be your, 
your default safe reaction. And so I had to fight through that. Now, my wife, she is an extrovert and she just jumps right in headfirst. And, uh, and so she helped me a lot. And uh, it, it was remarkable. I remember very early on, we'd have somebody show up at our house, probably a woman, a Mozambican speaking Portuguese a mile a minute. And they talk, she talked for 15, 20 minutes, and then this woman would leave. And I'd look at Heather, I'd say, what, what was that about? And Heather would say, well, she wanted this and this and that. I'm thinking, how in the world do you know that? What, what about these words? Well, I don't know what those words mean. I, all I know is that's what she was saying. <laughs> and, uh, and so that just used to frustrate me. But um, so Heather helped me push into that. It just, it's just hard. It takes, it's humiliating and you make mistakes and people laugh at you. And which at the end of the day can be really good, good medicine. You know, if you can't laugh at yourself, um, then, you know, that's going to be a problem. And uh, so another thing that we had, we have a a very dear friend, kind of like a family member. His name is Amadaku. And uh, he was, he, he lived with us when we were in Mozambique and um, 17, 18 years old, an extraordinary young man. He's actually in the U.S. right now at LBC. Um, studying and then preparing to go back to Mozambique. But uh, Amadaku was my language learner, my language helper. And so he was, he was very, very gracious. And so we would work painstakingly hours, pronunciation, reading, writing, uh, you know, and I'd be preparing sermons, lessons, those kind of things. And so that, that really helped. That was a game changer for me. What was a typical week for you in, in, in Mozambique? Um, I don't know if I, if you had a typical one, but did it change or what did you find yourself busy doing the most? Yeah. So for most Americans to, to, to rebuild a life in another country like that, it's, it's, you know, just as it takes an unbelievable amount of time. And so things that we do here that we might take for granted you're having to learn all new systems, paying your water bill, paying electricity. How do the phones work? What are, what are the safety issues I need to be mindful of? If you're married and you have children, how do I, am I taking care of my wife? Is she in safe places? Or am I missing things that I need to be catching? Um, what about health concerns? You go into another culture, you've got different diets. It hits your system differently. So you're working through all those pieces. If I've got to go to the doctor, and I'm, and I don't speak Portuguese or my Portuguese is limited because I'm learning, you know, that all of a sudden was a normal activity can become very, very stressful, especially if your child is sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have lots of, lots of time dedicated to those kinds of things. Just, just, just constructing a life over there. Now, my primary ministry was discipleship through theological education. And I taught at the a major seminary, major seminary there in Maputo, which is in the city or the capital city of Mozambique. It's in the far south of the country. How right far there away next, was that from where you lived? The, the drive home was, as the crow flies, maybe 10 miles. And it would take 30 to 40 minutes, usually, traveling out. So we lived outside of the city, kind of in... Um, what, if we took our American friends there, they would think, man, you live way out in the bush. But it wasn't actually that far out of the city. So, you know, so in terms of my daily ministry, a lot of it was at the seminary with students teaching. We had chapels. 
Uh, my The classes that I was involved with, I think I did some first and second Corinthians theology. We did an apologetics and ethics class. Mm. Uh, so very, very exciting. I mean, never a dull moment. We had uh, one of the classes in ethics. We were, we were dealing with domestic violence. And that was a topic that day. And, and I said, okay. So the Mozambican people are very expressive, as well as the Ugandans. Maybe the Mozambicans, from my perspective, maybe a little more expressive, but facial expressions, hand movements, um, how you greet, you know, the kiss, kiss, kiss kind of a deal. Oftentimes a good man like, you know, Luke, if I saw you at uh, the market and I hadn't seen you for a while, we might greet and shake hands, but then we would maintain our hand shake and we might even walk along the market holding hands kind of leaning in talking and so um a very communal type of um of people and so very very dramatic which i love and then i've kind of picked that up and i'm kind of the dramatic person as well and so domestic violence was the topic that day and and I like to act out case studies and even, you know, put some drama into them. And so I got up my Bible, wrote, uh, Ephesians 5, and was talking about how the husbands are the head of their wives and the wives need to submit. And so I'm reading these, this passage. And, and then the case study was I put myself first person into a case study. I'm a husband. I'm reading these passages and I'm trying to lead my wife and my children in the way of Christ. But my wife is going the other direction. And, uh, and this is, is very hard because Ephesians 5, it says here, I'm the head of the wife and, um, and she's not following me. And so I'm upset. So I play this out. And then the clincher is, okay, she's disobeying. Is it okay for me to do a little bit of this to bring her back around? And so I drew a line on the chalkboard. Yes, that is okay. On this side, on that side, no, it's not okay. And I threw somebody the chalk and I went and sat down. I said, okay, I want you guys to answer it. And I want justification. Don't just put a check mark under yes or no. Give me arguments from the Bible. Justify it biblically. And that morning was a wake up and smell the coffee morning for me because they filled up the yes side, the class did. And they filled it up with Bible verses. Mm. And to give an example, I remember one of the one of the brothers, he said, uh, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so he said, look, this is how the rationale goes. God, the father demonstrates his love for us in this. How does God, the father demonstrate his love? He demonstrates it by physically beating and killing his son to die for us. And so he said, mm. if I want to follow God, then I need to also show love. Well, how do I show love? I want to show love the same way God the Father shows love. So I'm going to show love like that to my wife by some of this. Mm. I thought, oh my word, I've never heard that translate, that interpretation before. And well, um, this is, you're describing just that's that that exact same thing happened at Denver Seminary almost every day. Same exact. Just kidding. I'm trying to imagine this this uh, this discussion at Denver Seminary, but this is <laughs> wild. This is yeah. this is perfect illustration though of how did you come up with that 
um do you feel comfortable talking about that uh oh how, yeah yeah you bet how do you feel comfortable or, or how, how did you come up with that this the discussion topic i mean obviously you know you're in the culture so you're probably aware of something that needs to be addressed mm-hmm. when i teach i love case studies um if you can if the students not only understand the, the rational argument, okay, we're dealing with a perspective here, but if they can also feel the emotional import. So we had one where, you know, where we were dealing with homosexuality and, you know, I put myself first person into somebody who's struggling with this, you know, to, to ramp up some of the emotions because, you know, when you encounter this, you know, there's genuine emotions that, you know, people are carrying, okay, so let's feel that, but now let's go back to the, the argument and evaluate it biblically. And so I love case studies. And so um, oftentimes I will try and talk to some of the nationals, um, brothers and sisters, and say, you know, if I'm in a particular context, what are these people going through? And so let's, let's try to scratch where it itches. Let's bring something right down in front. And, uh, and I think if you can act things out, I love that, you know, to me, it's a lot of fun um, interaction um, rather than a lecture where I'm lecturing. No, man, this is, this is, if this is your question, it's not my question, it's your question. So I want you to answer it. Now I'm going to be here to help you in the process of answering it. But if you don't own the answer, you're probably not going to walk out, out of here with it. You know, so I want them to own that. I want them that to be part of, of who they, of who they are when they leave. They had, you know, so on the domestic violence stuff, you know, we went through, okay, everybody, you know, if this was, you know, if student X wrote the first line, okay, stand up. Let's, let's all read that verse. Is that, does this verse substantiate this position? What is the context of the verse? You know, and you just go through every single one. That's great. That's great. We had one on that topic where one of the gals raised her hand. We had most of our students were men, but we had some women there. And she said, you know, in Mozambican culture, and this is what she says. She said that we as women, we feel loved when we are on the receiving end of, of a little bit of that. Okay. So Rob, thought, Rob, just, just so you know, we're, we have, this is going to be posted audio as well. So you, <laughs> When you're oh, on, just spell it out with, with words, you're, when you're on the receiving end of, when, we, so, we can what, see what you're doing, but you're beating, you're using a fist. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about beating the wife, right? Thank you. I need to tone down some of the drama here. Um, no, no, no. Uh, the drama is great. It's just the, the work you need for someone who's just listening, but not yeah. watching, they wouldn't know you're hitting your, your hand with your fist. Yeah. So she said, this woman said, she said, we as Mozambican women, we feel loved when our husbands beat us. And that was one of those moments where I just had to say, okay, time out. I got to make sure that the Portuguese that's being spoken and understood is correct because I think I'm missing something. Either I didn't hear it or I'm not, I'm missing something. And so we had to back it up. Let's go through the Portuguese, slow it down, make sure I'm understanding correctly. Had had another young guy raise his hand. He said, yes. Can I, uh, I think I'm missing one thing Um, in this is a class in the seminary in Laputu. Correct. How do you say the word of the the name of the city? Maputu. Maputu. Sorry. Maputu. Mm -hmm. That's okay. 
It's a big city. Is it, yes. the, cap is it the capital city? Yeah, the capital city, over a million people. So it is just okay. alive with activity. This is a major city. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this is an urban context and uh, tropical climate, would you say? I think subtropical, it's, there's some deserty area in Mozambique, okay. but. How far away from the coast is it? It's right on the coast. So we've got okay, so a lot of coconuts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you got, I'm trying to imagine this. Um, it, it's a, it's a seminary there. Mm -hmm. The seminary has been there for how long? It's at fairly this, new. It's point. a big, beautiful building that Pete, that they built. And so it's, but it Wait. hasn't been functioning very well. And so maybe five to 10 years at this point, it's been there that long. Okay. Yes. So it's a relatively new venture. Uh, is there air conditioning? Uh, no. At the time. Okay. Is it hot? Very hot. Very hot. So you're in a classroom of how many people? Maybe 20 students. 20 students is there windows open and all that or yeah they have fans they open up the windows is it concrete the temperature concrete building concrete okay mm -hmm. and is it men and women that's where i was trying to get to in this class is it men and women in this class correct it's mostly men i would say maybe 75 percent men 25 percent women and this is the domestic violence uh episode you're talking about mm-hmm and this that that's where this lady said um yeah in the context of that class as we were just dealing with domestic violence is this mm -hmm. biblical what does the bible have to say about this she raised her hand and said that women in mozambique feel loved when they are on the receiving end of physical abuse from their husband and you said slow way down let's make sure we get the translation right and mm -hmm. how did the class react to that how did the other women react how did the men react. Well, I went, I kind of pretty much said, I, I didn't tell her this. I didn't say, I don't believe you, but I, I just wanted to make sure that I understood what was going on. And so I went to some other students. I said, Hey, this gal here just said this, is this true? And three or four of them started nodding their heads. Yes. And it was a consensus basically in class that that was the case. I guess I'm wondering, is that their answer? when the men are around or is that the answer when they're not, when there's no men around? I'm, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that would Did be a good question. Sense that this was a real genuine answer. I think so. They're, 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 they're honest and they can be very blunt. The Mozambican people. Okay. Unbelievable. They're incredible folk people. There's no reason for her to make that up. In other words, what you're saying. I don't think so, but that's an interesting question. You know, if Heather were, were and, and my wife, Heather, her, she worked with the Mozambican women and young women in the youth group, uh, as well as care for our family. But if Heather was working with the women and she asked them that same question, it would be very interesting to see. But I didn't have any indication uh, that there was something going on that would precipitate a, uh, a response that might be different. So, so how, if I can, how, how, how did you deal with that in that context, in that moment? Well, my, I always want to go back to the Bible. That's, that's where we go. And so um, the, I mentioned a little bit earlier, I would, I would often say, okay, these are questions. This, this is something that's happening in your context. And so it's, in a sense, it's your issue. And I would want to push that onto them. And then, okay, everybody get out your Bibles. 
Let's start working on, on finding a solution to this together. What does the Bible say? I don't want to give a lecture. I don't want them to hear my answer. Mm -hmm. I want them to read it for themselves. Mm -hmm. I want them to find those verses in their Bible, underline them so that they have it. And so we would work through all those verses kind of one by one by one by one. And uh, so I like to teach, and if I can do it ideally, it's going to be in the context of a discussion where we're discussing, we're going back and forth, but then I don't want to let anybody hijack the class to go off the cliff one way or the other. And so through the discussion, but then towards the end, then we wrap it up and then I, I will give a summary and say, look, you know, this is, these are very clear verses on this. This is what the Bible says. Are we together? And so I would often try to push them to, to, to work on the, those solutions for themselves as much as I could. Did you ever find yourself, because obviously it's not, the classroom is not, you're not running it like a democracy, right? You're not saying, let's take a vote on this and that's the right answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you're, you, you are recognized as an authority somehow by them is that would you say that's fair oh my in, yeah. in the classroom oh my okay it, it, it's a so shame. do they just do they believe you if you say don't beat your wife or what how do they they do they look at you like you're why are we even having this discussion this seems like a kind of an american political issue mm -hmm. what does that have to do with um oh yeah see so that's that's a super important question and that gets into this idea of what does it look like in a shame honor culture, which Mozambique is an honor culture, not exclusively and perhaps not as strong as Asian countries would be. But you do see it. And we also see that in the U.S., even though I don't think that's our predominant posture. But they want to honor me. So clearly I don't speak their language. I'm stumbling along in my Portuguese Clearly, I've got white skin. I'm not a Mozambican. I came from a long ways away. I came on an airplane. And so I'm a special guest there because they're so communal. They're very communal, loving. They welcome me with their arms wide open. If I needed anything, even if all they had was five cents, they'd give it to me. They would give me the shirt off their back. And so because I'm an unhonored guest there, they want to honor me and elevate me. Every chance they have to show me honor, they want to do that. And so then I want to try to push back to say, okay, I really appreciate that. You're, you honor me and I, I, I feel that. I sense that. Thank you. But I'm just a man. I struggle with sin and temptation. I need a savior every day. And uh, we're on this journey together. So let's, let's, let's open up our Bibles. So I want, I'm pushing kind of back in that other way. And so, but I would not want to just fall back to a default position of, I have a position of honor. So I'm just going to lecture and I expect you to believe it. I want them to wrestle through that for themselves, you know, and anytime in a, in an honor culture like that, an honor or shame culture, you're asking somebody a yes or no question, boy, we've got to be really, really careful as Westerners, Westerners so that we're not the dumb Westerner that doesn't have a clue what's going on. Even thinking about the exclusivity of Christ, 
you know, in the context of syncretism, it's very easy to add Christ right there with the witch doctor, with mm-hmm. Islam, with Muhammad. And, you know, we'll just wrap it all together. If, if Christ can't help me, maybe the witch doctor can. But communicating the exclusivity of Christ, for example, is another thing that's it's, it's not a, it's not a trivial manner. You know, and so if we if I gather up a bunch of people out in a, a rural area and, and do a gospel presentation, say the Romans road in five or 10 minutes. OK, who wants to follow Jesus and be saved? Now, they know I'm their invited guest. Clearly, I'm not one of their people. They don't get very many of those guests there before. They want to honor me. Now I'm asking them a yes or no question. Do you want to receive Jesus? And what would very likely happen? Probably everyone would raise their hand. Now, are they raising their hand because they want because that's really what they want to do? Or because they don't want to shame me. They want to honor me. And so they don't want to tell me no. And so, you know, if I were to do that and have a group under the tree, that would be a very foolish thing for me to do as a Westerner. And I would be doing something and things would be happening that I don't have a clue what's going on. And, uh, and so it would be a similar thing in the context of a classroom. I don't want to appeal to that authority. Now, you know, maybe in some cases you have to, or you would say, you know, I'm not appealing to my authority as a Westerner, but maybe my authority, you know, I've had more Bible classes or, you know, some of those things. That, that's interesting. When you said you taught ethics in Africa, <laughs> I, I immediately was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Because there are these two different systems, mm-hmm. in, a, in you know. Um, so when you come into a conflict like that, uh, I was struck as you were talking about how they honor you. Mm-hmm. I was struck with, you know, in just in my in my sarcastic thing. I'm like, interesting. They never hit you. You know, <laughs> do, do you do, do you ever pit against to have them start to wrestle with? I mean, I'm sure you do stuff like this and like, well, here's here's what honor looks like. What's the difference between honoring someone and loving someone? Mm-hmm. And and are those compatible? You know, or mm-hmm. it, uh, that would be a fascinating struggle for their minds. In, in- well, absolutely. So if you're asking them a yes, no question, what? What's the highest value? Is it truth and honesty or is it honor? And for Mm -hmm. a lot of them, they might say, you know, it's not that we don't think truth is important. Truth is good, but our highest value is going to be to honor you. And so they're doing in their minds what is right. Yeah. But I think like you said, you know, and I, and I would say that's, that's the same teaching style that we should employ anywhere, whether it's a youth group at a local church. Hey, you know, is tattoo something you're wrestling with? That's your problem. I don't want to go get a tattoo. You open your Bible, you know, <laughs> let's wrestle through this together. You know, so it wouldn't just be that, that I would want to employ that, you know, in that context. I, I think that's, that's the style that I favor. That's good. I like that. I think there's a very, there's some similarities here with college campuses in, in the United States. I think there's an honor shame culture on campuses. And I, I, I'm mainly thinking of the shame thing. Mm. Shame is very powerful on college campuses and Mm. a lot of students will agree with you, but they won't admit it Mm. because of the shame that it's Republican. There's a lot of shame with the brand or the name or whatever. I've noticed it's not so much conservative. It's Republican because Republicans vote 
Republicans are threatening to the Democrat agenda. And it's very powerful on campuses, college campuses. So you might have the opposite where I'm thinking of your example of, of saying who wants to accept Christ. And you might have an opposite where you might have, I, I've had very shocking examples on, on campus where I've asked, um, is it true that rape is wrong? And no hands go up. No, no hands go up. Mm. And they're ashamed to say that there is such a thing as moral truth, mm. even it's though they the probably part. really do believe it. Mm. But it's too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know what else, how else to I'm just describing the, some of the experience that I've had. So it's interesting to honor shame. I think it takes, I think it's very human. Well, I would say it on your radar. That. Absolutely. And even as other pastors have pointed out, as we look at ministry in the U S and I think the West coast is probably the most extreme example of that. You know, this is when, in terms of thinking strategically, it's, it's much closer to a cross-cultural type of situation. So these same strategies mm. that might be used crossing cultures, if we're going across an ocean, we're using the exact same thing. If you're in Seattle or Portland, you know, very similar kinds of strategies. Absolutely. You know, and I think it's interesting, like you said, Lucas, the, sometimes we can stay back in the West and say, well, you know, in the West, we're first world, we're rational, we're this, we're that. But it's amazing how many of these things are really at play here. Yeah. So I would wonder, I guess the question then on campus for you then would be, what would be the flip side? Is there any honor piece in that? I get, is the honor to. Because they're so young. There, there is a. That's, a, that's interesting. I don't think I've, I've thought carefully enough about that. It seems like it's changing a lot. Like I would, I would have said sports uh, not too long ago, but I'm not sure about sports anymore. But um, I mean, if you, if you have a, a school like CU Boulder, for example, that has a huge sports thing, a lot of the schools I taught at sports were not really that big of a deal, right? Community colleges, you know, I don't, I didn't, I don't think I knew anybody that was actually going to the football games, <laughs> but um but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, I don't want to get to, I don't want to turn this into, uh, an interview about me and my experiences on campus, but I just want to say that I, when you're, you were talking about the honor culture that, that really resonated, I, I just immediately recognized what you were talking about. Like mm -hmm. truth is not really the primary thing. It's down here. Mm -hmm. Feeling appropriate socially is even if it you give a false answer, <laughs> like what you're saying about who wants to become, you know, accept Jesus or whatever. <laughs> like you give, you yeah. say yes, but you it's false. <laughs> so you can so that you don't you don't look weird, you don't look dishonorable in that in that culture. Well, it, it's like in the context the that. In the context that Lucas, you shared, making this correlation between the African context and the college classroom, or the two college classrooms, I guess, um, 
what are the what's their hang up right is their hang up about rape and that's why they're not holding their hand up because they think rape's okay or is their hang up about you're talking about me and my classroom yeah you and your that question that you you know is 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 it morally reprehensible or is their hang up about morality like saying that there is a moral truth and and what do other other people think it it kind of makes me it reminded me of a uh, l- listening to Tony Campolo in the nineties. I don't know if you guys remember him, who he was. He was a speaker, Christian speaker, went around the colleges and stuff. He came to Biola and he said, <clears throat> he opened up his first line. He, he was always kind of sensationalist, right. To get, get people's ruffle people's feathers, but he, he made, gave some con- uh, statistic. Maybe it was like, uh, how many, how many, you know, some high percentage of people go hungry in the world every day, uh, like, you know, 80, let's just say 80% of this demographic is hungry in the world every day. And, and none of you give a shit. And, and he goes, and then he says, and the problem with the whole thing here is you're worried about me saying shit. And you're not worried about these people over here that are hungry. And that's the point. And so it just kind of made me think like, where's your hierarchy? Like you're worrying about like, uh, the shame, the appropriateness, the uh, of of something as opposed to the real truth, and I think it seems like that's the thread that's going on between these two examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, a, a question I love to ask when I travel international: What do you think about Americans? And I just oh, love sure. to hear what people say. Yeah. And as you guys know, I mean, you know, if you're swimming in something, it's hard to see. You might you might miss certain things. But somebody on the outside can point that stuff out, just like I can probably analyze and critique a different culture better than maybe I perhaps I could my own. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, exactly what we're talking about right now, you know, looking back and forth and patterns. OK, I see patterns here. What about my, my own culture? That's one of the things that can make this a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. So when you said you taught ethics, you're like, I taught ethics. <laughs> You don't understand. I taught ethics, man. <laughs> well, Rob, so you had this extremely interesting teaching ministry experience in a major city in Africa, Mozambique. Then tell us what happened after that. You you left Africa and came to the United States, but are still interested in Africa ministry. So tell us about that. Yeah, so we ended up leaving Mozambique, a number of reasons. Uh, the, the principal ones that we were struggling to educate our four children. We were looking at boarding school at that point and got some great friends that have done that. And it's worked out good for them. And I'd say God bless them. Um, but when it came time to making that decision for our family, I was not at peace about that. Didn't feel like, a, you know, we ought to. And so, and so we decided to come back to the U.S. And so but uh, as Curtis and I were talking about earlier, Africa gets into your blood. I mean, they're just absolutely amazing people. And uh, we've learned so much from them in so many different ways. And uh, it's really changed Heather and I in our lives deeply, profoundly. And uh, so that's really my heart. That's kind of where my heart is. And so for me to have a chance to work with LBC again now back in Africa and then be able to care for my kids here and educate them has just been an unbelievable blessing. So it's, uh, you know, the remote piece is tough in some ways. 
you know, there are some wins and some losses. This past year, I'll say uh, in Uganda and a lot of these other countries where everything's getting closed down, a lot of the face-to-face schools closed down. You know, the government says, okay, that's it. And for us going remotely, we did not miss a beat. We missed a couple of residencies. We couldn't, we couldn't fly over, but we had them via Zoom. And so, um, and so I miss, miss the FaceTime and some of the conversations we're talking about, you know, you can't have that in a 30 minute Zoom call. I mean, it's, you know, these are, you know, thoroughgoing, emotive can you imagine having, Yeah. Can you imagine having the, the class discussion that you were talking about over Zoom? <laughs> I can't even imagine the challenges that, yeah. I mean, technology is such a blessing, but just let's be realistic about the limitations of it. You know, geez, that's amazing. Um, so now, did you, was it just that Lancaster was involved with Uganda, that you got involved with Ugandan ministry, or had Uganda been on your heart before that? Um, was it just like, oh, that's, that's, is that in Africa? Yeah, it's in Africa, so I'll do it. I like Africa still. What tell tell us specifically about Uganda? Why specifically Uganda now after specifically Mozambique and specifically that city in Mozambique? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Uganda. That's it, the the partnership was already there between LBC and PDN in Uganda, and so there that wasn't even a decision for me. It was yeah, it's different than Mozambique. Um, different people, a little bit different language. And then in Uganda, it is uh, because it was a British colony, so they, their government or trade language is English. And so that, that made the decision for me. But I said, I've got a chance to, to continue to work with, tra- and with training pastors in Africa. Oh, my word. And I'm going to get to do so vocationally. I got one of the best jobs in the entire world. <laughs> and so that's, that's how that panned out. Even, you know, at the beginning, Uganda is an amazing country, amazing people. Oh my word, these brothers and sisters over there are something. But because it is an English speaking country, and then in terms of um, stability and safety, it's a softer landing than many other countries Mm -hmm. in the sub Saharan Africa. And so there's a lot of ministries going on in Uganda. I think you just look around, you see all kinds of um, different churches, schools, seminaries. If you're flying over in a plane to Uganda, when you go to Mozambique, you're not with any missionaries. You fly over to Uganda, man, I mean, half the plane might be short-term missions teams that are going over. And, and so I originally thought, you know, working in Africa sounds great, but why is LBC doing this in Uganda if there's already a, a bunch of other churches and missions involved there? And so there has to be, so I had to have a good answer for that. Before I even started with LBC, I jumped on a plane and I wanted to get over there because I'm sure, you know, like you guys have seen, you've just seen way, you've heard way too many good stories that sound good in the story, but man, we need to get into the weeds. You know, how are we doing morally, financially? Are we accountable? Theologically, are we on the straight and narrow? And so I wanted to jump over there and have a chance to ask some hard questions to see how they're answered, you know, sit down with Richmond. So I spent a couple of weeks with Richmond an amazing guy, just, I could ask him anything, you know, for, you know, in those areas, morals, finances, theology. And uh, so that was really, really encouraging for me. And so I think what we're doing there in Uganda is somewhat unique. 
And um, Philip Jenkins, a historian, I, I don't know if he's at Baylor now, but he's written, he wrote an article with the Gospel Coalition and uh, said the future of global Christianity, one word, Africa. And he's mainly looking at birth rates on that. But also, I think another part of that would be that sub-Saharan is so open to the gospel. And so he's saying, you know, that's, that's the direction it's moving in terms of the center of gravity for, for Christianity. And so I think for us, we have an incredible opportunity right now strategically, to educationally, to serve our brothers and sisters in Africa. And I think that I don't know how long that, that opportunity will be there at the, at the level that it is right now. So for me, that's absolutely unbelievable. We need to be doing missions to unreached people groups. This isn't as much of that kind of thing in Uganda. But, um, and so it's been very exciting for me. Our cohort, a lot of our cohorts, we have 22 students. And among those 22 students, cohort five, and I think also cohort six, 22 students, how many spoken languages do you think was represented among 22 students? What would you guys guess? I, I wanted to say 22, but that's it. That was it. We, oh my gosh. we got there and we wrote them out. Crazy. Let's write, write out how many spoken languages do we have? So 22 students, 22 spoken languages. So when you start thinking about taking the gospel to the remote areas, the hard to reach, the underreached areas, these guys already know the culture, they know the languages. And so that really excites me, the idea of, of training a national and uh, so that's exciting that's really cool yeah that's ex that is exciting rob you said that the language in uganda is english so did you have to learn english first to, to go over there i tell people i'm still learning how to speak it luke <laughs> and what was that like learning english um i think i was there for that watching you learn english i think you were i think you taught you helped teach me some english <laughs> i think i was trying to learn it alongside you um I, I, I hesitate to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it because I just feel like somebody wants to know Mozambique or Uganda, which do you like better? Oh my word. Now you're going to put me in a really bad spot here. Um, you know, they are different cultures. And so um, the, the Mozambican um, I think because we haven't lived in Uganda our level, our depth of interaction with at a heart level to that country is not the same as Mozambique. Mm -hmm. And I know um, you guys both speak other languages. And so developing a thoroughgoing, genuine relationship with somebody in another language is a special thing that most, most Americans don't, they, they've never experienced. And so for us, those experiences are with Mozambique. And so I think the level of our heart goes back deeper there because we've lived there. But um, there's yeah. so many similarities, um, so many similarities, just unbelievably gracious people with faith and worship that really is, uh, is uh, I, I think, impacted and changed us. So to me, that answer is sounds true. Doesn't just sound like on the honor shame thing. It sounds like it's actually true. But it's also honoring, so that's kind of cool that you did both. Um, do you keep up with what's going on at that school that you taught in, Laputo? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Not as much as I probably ought to, but um, you think you, you find know, yourself thinking about it? Oh yeah, 
Yeah, we love it. And it's, you know, I used to tease. We haven't been back to Mozambique since we left. And, you know, when we go back, it's going to be, it'll really be an emotional trip. And I'll have to really yeah, keep I an bet. eye on my wife. She might burn her passport up and just say, I'm staying. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, yeah. you know, the, the educational needs, I think, are, are such that it, it continues to be a battle. And so the seminary continues to need more and more teachers. I know they're developing, raising up Mozambican teachers, and, and that is absolutely wonderful. Tell us the name of the, the school that you taught out there again. It's, um, oh, my word. It uh, is the, I think, the Theological Seminary of Maputo. Okay. And um, I had another question, but I, I, I had a question crowd that out. So this is like one of those, like the talks where I feel like you could go into a million different ang uh, angles and directions. And I'm trying to figure out what would be the best for this one, Rob, I think we, we need to have you come back at some point and trail off on some of these other things. Cause I think we barely scratched the surface. That'd be great. I'd love to, I sure appreciate the work you guys are doing. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, the, these kind of things, you know, this conversation, it really speaks to, in, there's a lot we can learn. There's a lot we can learn in the West of, from your experiences there, um, even, even theologically, spiritually speaking, where, where just at the very end there, I was struck with, you know, gosh, the, I know there's so many opportunities for teachers overseas and, and when you're, we're paying attention to the way God moves across the globe, not just in our, not just in our town and our, in our state and our country, but some doors are being closed. And I know there's a lot of doors being closed for, for college professors, um, in the States. Uh, it, it's difficult, but maybe there's a movement where there's an opportunity to, uh, be, uh, you know, go to a smaller pond that, that may become a large ocean, you know, in the future and be a part of building that um, there's opportunities for college uh, trained people to hear from here to go over there and just walk right in with ease um, mm -hmm. and, and do what they want to do, you know, call what they're called to do teach. Absolutely. And if you're involved in like teaching English as a second language or something like that, you can get into all kinds of places. Yeah. Yeah. Rob, do you have a, a specific story in mind that stands out to you beyond what you've shared here already that would help us understand your heart for Africa, your heart for missions there, or just an interesting story about living there? Mm. One, that, one that really touched me um, is uh, the the Mozambican people, the Ugandan brothers, Kenyans, Rwandese, the, because so many of them have, have experienced such incredible difficulty and they've endured such unbelievably traumatic events in their lives and unbelievable losses, that changes you. It, it, it humbles you. It, um, I, I mean, humble is not the right word, but it just, it makes you a deeper person. And, um, and so I, I, <clears throat> when I see their faith 
from that context, their love for God, their joy in worship, their passion to study and to learn and to know is extraordinary. And it's moving. We had so so one one story that might illustrate that we were in one of our theology classes, we were wrapping it up. And I can't remember the topic that day. It might have been sanctification. And uh, and we're we're on the last five minutes of class, and a gal in the back raises her hand and she says, Professor. And I called on her and she said this. She said, Today in class. Can we conclude our class by all singing a worship song to God in response of this amazing truth? And I almost just lost it. Mm. I've been in a number of theology classes in the U.S. and I've never had one that even came close to, you know, <laughs> just the truth was, was so touching that it's we need to sing and praise God now. And, um, and so I said, you bet. And so we all stood up and we sang and, uh, which was, you know, to me, if our, if our theology, if our study of God does not lead us to worship, then we've got a problem. And, uh, and here was this gal Telma who mm -hmm. said that, and that, so that really touched me and was a remarkable moment. Yeah, can you imagine a, a a student doing that in the in the U.S.? I think mm. it would it would be one of those sociological studies. Honor, honor, and, sh honor and shame. Yeah, it would be a shameful yeah. thing. Mm. Yeah, that, that would never happen. Yeah, it would never happen with an American student without people thinking weird things about that student because mm. of our culture. Yeah, I mean, our culture blocks us from being truthful all the time all the time in america and that's a truthful response with that it was it a lady that said that in your class mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's a truthful response it's a it's someone she's obviously in touch with do you remember her name telma telma mm -hmm. she she was in touch holistically with the truth of the theology that you were sharing that day. Do you remember the topic? I think it was sanctification, but I can't oh. remember for sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember feeling that way in theology or in, in apologetics or in any number of things, but I had to hold it inside because mm -hmm. it was not appropriate to you know, just, yeah, I, I can't play the guitar, but I can you imagine if you just started like breaking out and like playing the guitar and <laughs> instead you know, of an we got to time limits here, you know, we got to <laughs> make sure, you know, um, how are, how, how is, how are the Africans on time, Rob? I know that you are, let me share an, a small anecdote about Rob. Rob is a time person. He's, I knew that Rob would be on time for this. No question in my mind, he would be early. <laughs> in fact, so I, I was like making sure I got to be on time for this thing because Rob is, on, he is a time <laughs> guy. No, and that's a great, I love that. I love that about my friend, Rob. He is, you can trust Rob. Rob is, he is totally, has total integrity. 
And uh, so, but different cultures, I mean, do you, are they as obsessed with time over there generally? Yeah. I mean, that's another thing, you know, values. And so do you value the community? So do we start when everybody's here? Is that our, our highest value unity being together or is our highest value? We started, we said 10 AM and that's when we start. I don't care who's here. And um, very interesting question. And so, you know, I think by and large, historically, the ones, the Mozambicans that I'm thinking of, they would lean towards, we want to value community. So we want to start when everybody's here. But as you look at the modern world, that changes. I mean, that brushes up against that. And so we, I had a number of students that you fight with to try to start class. Okay, we're starting, you know, especially that first class in the morning, 7.30 or 8.30 or whenever it started. Um, they're coming in late. Well, and, and then what's the problem? Well, transport, rain, you know, I mean, there's the laundry list. And it was something I was fighting with. And I was having to try to check myself. I don't want to come down too hard because I know like Luke, what you said, you know, I'm mm. time oriented. And, uh, and so I finally just said, okay, well, how do, how do the Mozambicans in the city solve that problem? If you, and I asked them, I said, if you work at a bank, if you work at a bank in town, is that okay? If you show wonderful, up? wonderful question. That's what I was going to ask is how, or, how do the banks run? Yeah. Yeah. So is, I mean, is that okay? And then the students would say, well, no, that's not okay. Well, then why would it be okay in this class? And so trying to push that again, you know, how is your own culture answering that in the modern mm -hmm. world? And, um, mm -hmm. and I think I can share this story. We had, uh, um, and, may, and, it, and it could have been that this was, this was too far. I went too far. I'd have to let my Mozambican brothers judge me on this. But we had one or two, one one two, one or maybe two students had and, chronic and the, and the sisters. Don't forget yeah. the sisters. There you go. <laughs> Don't forget Talma. Uh, <laughs> we had one or two students that had, suffered from chronic tardiness, and so we went through this whole thing, you know, about what do the banks do, and you know, so there was a lot of runway for this. And then I said, look, it's still not helping. So this is the deal. Class starts at seven. I don't know what it was. Let's just say eight o'clock. 805, I'm going to go lock that door. And, and I think they thought, okay, that's fine. I don't know if he's really going to do it. Well, that next day I did that. Do they have so watches? Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Okay. You bet. And so that next day somebody showed up. I went locked the door. Somebody showed up 10 minutes late and he's at the door rattling it. And, um, and it was like, there was a collective gasp in the class. And so I went out and I, I just told the student, I said, look, this is the deal, you know, feel free to make yourself comfortable in the lobby, you know, and then you can come in the next, next class in an hour, whatever it was. And then I came back in by myself and it was, it might've been too much, but it was, it was one of those where you could almost feel it. Sure. But I'll tell you what, it didn't happen again. You know, that just happened one time and man, um, and it was an emergency. You make sure, you know, we're not dealing with a, a legitimate emergency because we make allowances for those kinds of things. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a great, I think that, I think I've heard that story before, Rob, I think, because it remember, I, I can't, I don't think I could have made that up, that story. I, I think I remember you saying that that's a great illustration of the, the tension 
having it on your radar, the tension between being respectful of a culture and then also like just basic consideration, right? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about, um, I mean, I'm a P on the Myers-Briggs and I think you're a J and, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not like an expert on this stuff, but like a P would be more flexible on time, which could be irresponsible. It would, would err on side of being irresponsible and also being perceived by others as, um, well, disrespectful. Let's just say it disrespectful of people's time. And uh, the P might be um, that might be coming off disrespectful because they're so lax on something like that mm -hmm. and they don't realize that's how they come off. And so you might have a whole culture like that. I don't know how exactly how that works, but but in the, that's why I love the bank example, because you remind me of a Swiss banker, you know, and, and the, there are certain folks, certain professors I've had. Of course, I was in the military and the military is run like a J on the Myers-Briggs. And you, you are just expected to conform to that. There, there, there's, you know, that that's just what it is. And so I, I, I lived in a J culture. I was a P and uh, you, you could tell I was a P. Like, you know, this was, I was always disoriented, like, oh, what, you know, and uh, my J friends were always like 15 minutes early. And um, um, so I, I thought uh, of Africa and I thought of, you know, that would be something where it would be hard to feel like you're respectful, but at the same time, you know, you, you don't want to be colonial or whatever, you know, but at the same time, I mean, that's just, you know. It, it, it this minute is not we're not going to get that minute back so you know what are we doing what are we doing here what what are what are you forcing me to do you're forcing me to wait for you so that's a, that and the domestic violence one i mean those are two gems i thought for, that we have from this interview mm. one one interesting thing on the time oriented piece was uh, i was i was had a zoom call can, can you Rich fit this in 25 seconds we just kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> 24 Maybe. seconds, 24 seconds now um, before we go to an I, ad. I had a, uh, no, are you serious? Do you, do you need me to tighten it up? No, okay. um, I'm kidding. I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, no, that's okay. That's good. I was, I had a zoom call scheduled with Richmond Wandera, the director there at PDM in Uganda. And, and, uh, and he is very time oriented person himself. And uh, so it was whatever the time was, I'm, I'm logged in, ready to go, might've been a Skype call and, and he's not there, he's not there, 10 minutes is going, I can feel my blood pressure going up. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I got an, a, a WhatsApp message from him. Oh, Rob, I'm so sorry I'm late. I had an emergency come up and I've got to deal with right now, but I'll call you later, is that okay? And I shot back the message, oh man, yeah, you bet. You know, take care of whatever you need to do, we can talk whenever. And, uh, and so he called me later that afternoon, that day, and he said, man, let me tell you what happened. And uh, Richmond's a pastor, and uh, he, was, uh, he was just, you know, getting ready for our call, going about his day. And a young woman in his church was sick. She might have been 23, 25 years old, something like that. But in, uh, 
in some of those contexts, any kind of sickness you get is serious because in some contexts, people die from a bacterial infection. And so she, this young woman was in the hospital and being treated and, <clears throat> and her mom came And the young woman's a Christian, part of Richmond's church. And uh, the mom was not a believer. And so the mom is there in the hospital room and the mom says, oh, my word, my daughter is sick. And she pulls out her phone to call for help. But who do you think she called? Any, any guesses on either you two from either you two? The witch doctor? The there you go. There you go. Person. You bet. Yeah. She called the witch doctor. Get down here. My, my daughter's sick. We need to, you know, cut some chickens up, you know, and do whatever. <laughs> and, um, and so the daughter's laying there in the hospital bed and heard that and about died. So she pulls out her phone and calls Richmond, Pastor Richmond. I'm here at the hospital. I'm not doing good. My mom just called the witch doctor. You need to come right now. And so Richmond, you know, dropped everything, went and jumped on a little, we call them boat to boat, his little motorcycle and beeline straight for the hospital. And uh, I think he ended up running into the witch doctor in the hallway. And it wasn't an ugly confrontation, but Richmond was firm and direct and said, look, this young woman follows Christ and you have no authority here. So you can, you can leave. And, uh, and so Richmond told me that and I thought, wow, you know, that doesn't happen in every day in the U S so. What I love about <laughs> story, that story, showdown, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. That story is so great because we're talking about the importance of time and you just folded in some kind of like, basically, can I say this satanic versus Christian? I mean, I don't know, but I mean, that's, that's really what was happening there. Yeah. I think is Rich Richmond typically sensitive about time in your experience? He's, he's very timely. He's had a lot of interaction in the West and uh, so he's a very timely person. Because you had that history with him where you trust him on time, you believed his story, right? Oh, I yeah. think a lot of people that are like, if they're chronically late all the time, and then it's, then, then they say that there's an emergency. It's like, you know, like some of my students, you know, they don't turn in work mm -hmm. and it's always an emergency. You know, my third grandma died. Well, I only have two grandmas. Tell me about that. You know, and um, <laughs> so um that's that's great that's that's just wonderful uh tell tell us how we can support you and what 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 are the needs that you face um how is this thing funded in uganda those are probably not all the same question but i you know let you run with that yeah we'll yeah, link whatever so, you want us to link to so tell us okay. the website sure um thank you yeah so it's uh the needs you know most of our students over there can't pay, can certainly can't pay a full price for tuition, what tuition would cost in the U.S. And so part of my role as well for this program is to raise money for the program so that we can carry it on and continue to do that. And so um, one of the things that I do is try to link up churches or individuals with students, pastors that they can sponsor in Uganda. Mm. And the idea there is we're, we're training a national you sponsor, we train, and together we can send a national. And, um, and so that's, that's what we do. That's part of, part of a major role of what I do as well. And so our program right now is about 
around 200,000 annually for two cohorts of students. So we're talking about 44 students that are in an accredited master's program for one year. And, uh, and then also what we do is we purchase all the books for these guys, all the books we send over are, are electronic books. And so we do not skimp on um, free domain, ancient, dusty theology stuff. No, we want to get the very best, the clearest written, best books we can into their hands. And it also covers a couple of trips, graduation. And so you break it down and you would say, well, yeah, 200,000 a year. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. But for 44 students getting an accredited degree in two years, um, in terms of efficiency and bang for buck, it's actually, I think, very, very strategic. And when you think about mobilizing a Western family, you know, that's expensive to do as well to, to another part of the world. And so, um, and so the, our students, they all have to pay, pay an amount. Um, in, the per, in the past, it's been an annual fee for each student of 500,000 Ugandan shillings, which is about 120 US dollars per year. Um, and some of our students, that's easier for some than others, but all of them have to pay something. It has to cost them something, even if it might be a student that's facing extraordinary financial challenges. Because if it's not doesn't cost them anything, then it's not going to be worth anything. And so that's that's one of our core values. So that's one of the ways that we, that we that we fund it. And so we have a number of supporting churches that want to sponsor. You know, you think about missionary walls. Well, we've got you know Edmund in Uganda, and you know he's doing this. And the other thing that's neat about that, I think, is uh, it has a start and it has a stop. And so it's not something that you're doing ad. Right, right. Continually. Yeah. And if you're doing if you're doing food or health care, shelter, those are all important expenses and people really mm -hmm. need them. But those are ongoing costs that will that will essentially never stop. And so our program two year program start date, stop date. This is the deal. And um, so it's it's two hundred thousand times forty four or it's two hundred thousand no. total. That's total. what you need. Total. And so you break that down. It's around. 400 per student per month. Yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking about it in terms of uh, just depending on where you go to school here in the States. I mean, that's anywhere from one to maybe not even one in some schools, but but one to maybe six or seven, eight students for a year. And now you're in, you're turning it into 44. That's you're like 10 xing the <laughs> 10 xing the investment. <laughs> yeah. What do you plus, think? Plus all the books too. Yeah, yeah. Are it so? I, I want to get the website. And make sure that people know where to go if they want to donate to that and want to contribute and support that. But um, in terms of the strategic importance of Uganda for Africa, what would you say? Um. <clears throat> What, what would you say the likelihood is that Uganda becomes a place to train? Well, maybe that's what's already happening. Maybe I missed that. Train, train African ministers and apologists and everything that you need for all of the ministry work in Africa. Is that already happening in Uganda? Is Uganda like a, a hub for that? Is that? I think I might have missed that. 
Yeah, it, over twenty-two it, languages. I think. Yeah. You you didn't you weren't just talking about in Uganda. You were talking about all over Africa or in that general vicinity. So right okay. now we have a student from South Sudan. We have Kenyan. We have Rwandese. We've had him from the DRC. We had one who graduated from Zimbabwe, and uh, but. I didn't mention this earlier, but Uganda just so happens Richmond has shared with me is, is an unbelievably uh, strategic country because it has very friendly relations with all the countries around. And so these Ugandans are able to travel. A lot of times refugees are coming to Uganda. They're welcomed in Uganda. And so it's almost like a wagon wheel that can go out. And so I think from that sense, it is quite strategic. The other piece and these aren't my words. This is Richmond Wandera, who's a Ugandan. He said, look, the history of our education that we received from colonialization is basically rote memory. You read a chapter, you almost memorize the chapter, and then you reproduce it. And so uh, he said the skills of critical thinking, problem solving, uh, things that I think that we are stronger, or, or you know, those are some of our you know, things, strengths for us in the West. Mm -hmm. um, our needs, our great needs there in Uganda. And that's what Richmond has shared. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that would set our program apart from some of the others. So I think it's you know somewhat unique um, of our, say, 12 classes. We do have some Ugandans teaching and we want to have more Ugandans teaching. Richmond and I co-teach a class. We have another Ugandan who graduated from our program. He teaches. But the majority of them are Western professors. And so some people might say, well, that's a negative and it might be a negative in some way, but it's also getting to leverage strengths that I think that we can ways that we can really serve the African church by helping them in ways that we're strong. And, uh, and that's one of the things Richmond said is so critical as well, that I think sets this program apart as well. Yeah, I think the critical thinking piece, uh, helping add that to their tool belt, if you will. Mm. That's huge. That's huge. Where, where is the university? And uh, some people may want to know this. I'm curious. Um, but where's the university in correlation to uh, the Great Lakes region? It is. Um, it is. So we're PDN is in the capital city of of Kampala, the capital city of Uganda, oh, okay. which is Kampala, which is just on the north side of Lake Victoria. Okay. Okay. Just because that Great Lakes region is historically volatile. And so I think some people are, might be curious where it is. And yeah. Well, how do we make sure that you, uh, that you need, you get what you need? How, how does that, how does, how does that work? I is can there... send you a link if you would like. Okay. Send it to me. I'll put it in the description, but also maybe say how to get there. If someone was trying to look for it, you can go to e uh, LBC and then there's, you can go to a page that says pastors for Uganda at Lancaster Bible college. Okay. That page, yeah. It's yeah. It, dot edu. Dot yeah. E I'm sorry. Dot edu. Yeah. Correct. Thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a college. Okay. Yeah. So if you so, did a search for pastors for Uganda, it should pull that up or they could reach out to me. My email address is rblanks at lbc.edu. Okay. Well, we'll link all that. Uh, is there anything that 
you, you, that you were wanting to get to that you didn't get to? No, I don't think so. I think it's a, a great opportunity to share and thank you guys yeah. for the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the things that's come out just in some of the conversation, you know, is we all have a lot to learn from each other. And I've certainly learned a lot from these brothers over here and they're, and they're sending missionaries to the U S yeah. Yeah. And there's a courage and strength that I see in some of these African pastors. In fact, Richmond said that the pastors of the leading churches in Western Europe, are, a lot of them are Africans. And mm. I think part of it's this, their cur- the courage and faith that's somewhat unique, but thank you guys for the time. Yeah, absolutely. Curtis, did you have anything else? Uh, when, just when you said their, their courage, I, I thought, you know, it, f- how interesting that a- Africans have been forged in courage mm. over these, over these last decades and even centuries. Um, and now God's putting it to work. Mm. Amen. I remember yeah. seeing uh, Ugandan missionaries in Hawaii in the nineties. Mm. They came, uh, there was a, there was a group called limit X and it was a, a musical group and I believe this was at Hope Chapel, Honolulu. That's what I want to say. Might have been a Calvary Chapel. I think it was Hope Chapel. But um, I, I had the T-shirt for a long time. I don't know where the T-shirt went, but I, I was just so amazed that there were some African missionaries to Hawaii. It was it was blowing my mind. <laughs> and yeah, they they got away with a lot of cultural stuff that we we would have issues with here, right? They, they can speak their mind about homosexual marriage you know a lot of people are are, feel like as soon as the rules change someone someone says the rule changed oh i guess i gotta say something else now and they you know the africans are like uh no that's not how the definition of marriage works (laughs) that's not how the definition of most things work you know so you know um yeah it was it was kind of cool you know, to see that, and it's inspiring. So we, we can all help each other and we all need each other. So mm. I'd love to see, uh, I'd love to see, uh, Africa continue to, uh, become a place of flourishing for people, especially older people. It sounds like old people are having a hard time there. You said mm. that the average age is young. So what's happening to all the old people? Well, you know, some of the history of war and then AIDS and then just, uh, I think, the lack in many cases of, of needed medical attention has shortened life expectancy for sure. So, yeah, uh, I'd, I'd love to see a bright future for Africa. There's always going to be challenges because look at us. We have, you know, stronger economy and military, but. Um, sounds like the Ugandan economy is strong enough for all the influx that they're facing. And I'd love to see that just continue and, and ripple out across the continent. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. Thank yeah, you. Great being with you. You too. Great to meet you, Curtis. Great to meet you.